So this today, the title is what Brian told me I got to preach on, which I'm thankful for because kudos for Daniel and what he had to teach a couple weeks ago. I am so thankful. It wasn't me, but it was great that he on what he did and and for Joe for last week. And so we will continue in Matthew chapter five. Uh, we are dealing with people again. So this two sections dealing from 38 to 48. And then uh, we're going to throw in Matthew 7, verse 12, just on the side of that. As the introduction goes, there are times that we notice something in life. For some reason, somehow, we've been assigned a group by somebody. We become a group that may or may not be the best group to be or the perfect group or a group that they want you to be in. Becomes almost like a um, thought that it becomes us versus them. For some reason, for some purpose, they have identified that you don't belong in our group. You belong in that other group over there. We don't talk to you. We don't hang out with. We think are just worthless individuals. And, and we find that in everyday life. Now, what's interesting, we find that a lot in history. Uh, the most famous feud that was done was back in the 1800s with the Hatfield-McCoys. Okay? We all know about that. We've studied that in uh, school. It all was over a pig. Somebody didn't like the pig they got. It either died or was skinny or it was ugly or it was bad. Who knows? But that set off a feud between the Hatfield and McCoy for the next 25 years. People died over that. Buildings were burned. Crops were destroyed. It finally came to an end where... Um, that Hatfield said, well, we're going to take this matter in our own hands. It ended up killing most of the McCoy family. Uh, burned their house, burned their farm. They were arrested and seven of them were sentenced to jail. The other one that is very fascinating is Aaron Burrs and Andrew Hamilton. Alexander. Well, sorry, I... My thought said was, hey, it's Andrew, right? Okay, we'll put Andrew in. <laughs> but what's interesting in this one, um, Alexander Hamilton um, were two key, and Aaron Burger was two key figures in the history of the United States, early history. And their function as founding father had an was often overshadowed by their legendary rivalry, which ended in a deadly duel in 1804. The tensions began uh, about 1791, when Burr, a Democratic Republican, was elected to the New York Senate in place of a Hamilton's best friend, who was a Federalist. Those were the competing political parties at that time. Hamilton took the defeat very personal and developed a staunch dislike for Burr. And at the next few years, both men frequently campaigned against each other. The competition came to a head in 1804. After Hamilton actively fought against Burr's campaign for governor of New York and helped to ensure that a rival politician named Morgan Lewis won instead. 
to how did this end? Well, Burr took Hamilton's action as an affront to his honor and demanded that he apologize. Hamilton refused, and after several confrontations through letters and others, Burr challenged him to a duel. Hamilton accepted, and along with two seconds, the men traveled to a rocky bluff in New Jersey on July 11, 1804. It's often argued that Hamilton was a reluctant participant in the duel, but he was there, and he personally fired his shot in the air. Still, all this is known for sure that it was Hamilton's bullet struck a tree branch above Burrow's head. And that Burrow shot, shot Hamilton in the stomach. He was taken back to his home in New York where he died the next day. Now, Burr was a vice president of the United States. Hamilton was a very well-known founding father. But their personal rivalry destroyed lives. Now, today we don't have do rules. We have football. So, I've listed a few up there. Okay. Okay, I'm old school, so I was going to put Washington Redskins, but I figured that was not appropriate. So, I like the Washington football team. Okay? Even though they're known as another name. And Dallas Cowboys. When that season of football comes around and those games come up, you see the dividing line pretty obvious. Uh, people stake their claim to a team or another. Uh, in my neck of the woods back in Denver, Denver and Oakland, now uh, Las Vegas Raiders, were hated teams. They hated each other, uh, especially in the 70s and 80s. It was a bloodbath as they played. They had more injuries and players kicked out for just downright meanness. Uh, there was just a dis and as you went to each opposing team's stadium, it was very obvious you may not want to wear your Bronco outfit in Raiders territory because it was like sea of black all around you and this little orange dot. Okay? Us versus them mentality. Um, again, from my history, uh, back in the 96 to 2002, the hockey team of Colorado Avalanche and Detroit Red Wings was a hated rivalry. They played for conference championship for, um, for each of those years. They, Colorado were able to knock them out a couple of times in game six of, out of seven for the championship. Um, they had a player named Claude Lulu. He was, he was the enforcer. Uh, he was average size, but he was mean. Um, well, he sent a lot of them to the dressing room through their play. But it became where there were <laughs> every period of 20 minutes, there were at least one or two fights between them. And before long, half their bench was kicked out of the game. So that made it difficult, but it was a rivalry that just stoked everybody's passion, along with... Um, the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox. Neither one of those will ever associate outside of a baseball team. There's always that us versus them mentality. And then this is, I put this one in for George. Ohio State and the rest of us. 
more can we say? <laughs> and then uh, for Bill Skiba, we got Michigan and Michigan State. Yeah. <laughs> but it is. Now, for most of us, it's just a fun little thing. Yeah, I'm for this guy. I'm for that guy. We don't take it to a point where we destroy people. We don't destroy vehicles or flags or people because of that rivalry. Now, there are some that do. And, but there's that mentality that we struggle with. Us versus them. Now, as we go to the passage in Matthew chapter 5, All right. I'm not pointing it in the right direction. Down, up. All right. Keep going. All right. We'll get to it. Okay. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start looking at verse 38. And that section is a continuation of the previous four sections. A um, little background on that information. There are six corrective illustrations that Jesus is giving in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. He is re-emphasizing divine standards of living in the kingdom which he was given through the Old Testament. Jesus is focusing on the internal, on what we are like in our mind and heart. The previous passages were dealing such as murder, adultery, divorce, oath. Today we're working on eye for an eye and love our enemies. What's interesting is Jesus knew the heart of the listeners, especially the self-righteous and self-satisfying religious leaders. They could not truly understand what he was saying he devoted much of the Sermon on the Mount to expose their faulty principles and motivation of the legalistic system they had replaced God's own revealed word. The phrase, you heard that it was said. If you look back in that passage, you see it in verse 21, 27, 20, or 31, 35, 38, and 43. A common phrase is like, you have heard. Well, what have you heard? You heard from the religious leaders this. And Jesus is going to show that what they have told you, they have omitted or added to Scripture. Scribes, much later, scribes and rabbis, however, did not attempt to translate or expound on the Scripture text itself, but rather they taught from the Talmud, an exhaustive, clarification of the traditions. So Jesus' teaching was such a departure from the people, that the, from the scribes and others, that it was amazing for those that heard it. So there's a couple of principles that we are looking at through verse 21 through 48, this section. And there's five of them. The first one is the first principle is that the spirit of the law is more important than the letter. The law was given as a guide to the type of character God requires. Second principle is that the law is positive and negative. Its purpose is not only to prevent both inner and outward sin, but to promote both inner and outward righteousness. The third principle is the law is not, to, is not an end to itself. It double purpose that goes beyond purifying the lives 
of God's people. Its supreme purpose is to glorify God. The fourth principle is God is alone qualified to judge men. And he alone can judge men's heart. Only the creator has the right and the ability to judge the deepest inner working of his creation. Unfortunately, the Pharisees and rabbis felt like that was their job to judge men. And they could only judge from outward experience. The fifth, fifth principle is that every human being is commanded to live to the perfect divine standard to which the law points to. Because that command is impossible for men to fulfill, God himself has provided the fulfillment through his son Jesus. The demander of righteousness now is the giver of righteousness. The lawgiver is also the redeemer. And so when we go to verse 38, you have heard it said. You have heard others say this. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So what does that mean? It is amazing that they said it was okay for retaliation with interest. A natural extension of their selfishness is evident in this. It's like, okay, somebody hurt you. You are more than the right to go back and do more back to them. That, rehabil that retaliation. The respect for the law and the wealth of others is always among the first and major casualty of self-assuredness. The Pharisees, the scribes, said, well, this is what we're teaching. If somebody takes an eye, you go and take their eye. If somebody breaks your tooth, you take their tooth. Somebody takes your camel, you go down and take two. Somebody does this, you do this. And it's, it's in violation of what God wrote in the Old Testament. We saw in Luke 18 passage that was read earlier, the elements of self-centeredness and pride and arrogance. James 4, 1 through says this, What cause fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that batters within you? You desire not to have, so you kill. You covet it, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have the, because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it upon your pleasure. Paul was willing to set aside his righteousness for the sake of the gospel and where for the others, based upon 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 4. So what was the purpose of the Mosaic Law? It was to tell future crimes. They knew that people were going to commit crimes, but it was to help use the law that they had to keep it from going on. And the purpose was to vet excessive punishment based upon personal vengeance and angry retaliation of the tribe. It was God's job to deal with vengeance according to Deuteronomy 32-35. We see in the New Testament in Romans 12-19 says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. It is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What happens when somebody does something to us? Our first immediate reaction is, I'm going to get them back. 
I'm going to plan and get him back. What's interesting is on the um, internet, there's a Reddit um, program, and there are people that write up experiences that they've had with the various people, and one of them is malicious revenge. And I've been reading some of those. They are unbelievable. A minor thing has happened, and they plan out an attack on that person that destroys their job, destroys their integrity, and destroys their name for the sake of destroying them because they were had something minor happen to them. They didn't get a promotion. And so they're looking to destroy the other person. That's not what we're called to do. The Pharisees were wrong in everything about God and their love because they, everything they worked on was based upon tradition. Say, oh, this is okay. We can do it that way. Matthew 5.20 says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. How hard is it for us? And the answer is hard. If, if we know that that level that we see in the Pharisees and, and the scribe is here, and God has called us to be here, where are we? Here or below? What can we do on that? There's some encouragement in this. Luke 12, 1 says, Meanwhile, a crowd of many thousands gathered so that they were trampling upon one another. Jesus began to speak first to disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrite. When we look at that passage in verse 39, But I tell you, do not resist the evil person. If somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. And we hear people say, well, then what you're going to do is, man, if you do that, you're going to get slapped on both sides. What does that mean? And you go, there's a purpose. There is a reason behind it. How are you going to react? When we look at verse 40, and if anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt, hand your, over your coat as well. If anybody forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Those are real life situations that we have encountered. How do you respond to act in righteousness? Not like a Pharisee with self-centeredness or what we normally do. Pharisees misinterpreted and forbidden uh, retaliation for a personal relationship. They did not want mean to take a stand against the threat of Jesus. But Jesus said, continue to resist evil. Paul, or Peter says in verse nine, or 5 9, he says, in all means to resist the evil is included in the church. When Peter confronted Paul in Galatians 2.11, remember that? Paul had to go talk to Peter and say, Peter, what you're doing is wrong. In Acts, uh, and then in Acts, Peter is confronted by two who lied, giving money to the church. Do you remember those? They said, oh, yeah, here, we sold this piece of land. We gave it to the church here, everything. See how good we are? We are righteous. And Peter says, why have you lied to the Spirit? The feet that are here to carry you out, because you're going to die. And they did. 
When the church stops preaching God's righteousness, justice, and eternal punishment for the law, it stops preaching the fullness of the gospel, both in society and the church has suffered greatly. And that is a comment from John MacArthur's commentary. When we, who have been called and saved by God and told to walk in a newness of life, fail to walk in that newness, we have failed Christ. We are much like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes of old who have failed to understand righteousness comes from the heart, comes from inward, not outward only. It's easy to put on a cover on the outside where nobody really knows you, but it's a different matter when you look at the righteousness done by actions. So as I said, whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other. People would say, well, why would you want to do that? Well, every human being has the right to be treated with basic dignity and respect and consideration because we are created in God's image. If God who demands us to treat each other with respect, we should do that. But how often do our sin entangles us and we become not what we're called to be, but we come with anger viciousness, and we create conflict. A slap to the face meant a very demeaning and contemptuous of act. To slap on the right cheek was a vicious, angry reaction, indicating an act of insult. Jesus' point on this relates more to what we are not to do than what we are to do. Turning the other cheek is symbolizing a non-avenging, non-retiratory Humble, gentle spirit is a direct character trait of us, the kingdom citizens. We were bought with a price. We believe in Jesus and commit our lives to him. We are now owned by God. We have no right in this world because of Jesus. He will stand for us. He will, we can lean on him and the example that we need to follow. 1 Peter 2, 20-23 says this, But how is it in your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his step. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth, and when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. To him bore our sins and his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. We look at verse 40. He says, okay, somebody's going to sue you. And they say, well, give him. They're going to sue your, for your shirt. And they said, well, give them a coat. Now, let me give you a little context, uh, cultural context in this, what that meant. They had a shirt underneath the garment that wore under the outer gar- uh, garment, which was used as a blanket at night. Most owned one coat and a few undershirts. The Mosaic law required it to 
to return to the owner before the sun set. For this is his only covering in his coat for his body, according to Exodus 23. So the attitude of the kingdom citizen, one who is righteous, should be willing to surrender even one's coat. His extreme valuable outer garment then cause offense or heart feeling to adversary. The coat should never by the court be given to give up, but could as a voluntary act to meet a debt. This is precisely what Jesus said we should be willing to do. One thing that we also realize in this passage, um, when they are saying an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, um, they are omitting some of the passages out of the Old Testament. Because it says, do this as you do for yourself. If you love yourself, would you not love one another? Verse 41 goes on and says, if we force you to go one mile, go for two. Be willing to sacrifice even liberty. God's original intent was for all who was made in his image to live in freedom. Human bondage and, and slavery are consequences of the fall. And we have no part in God's original plan for, we have no part in God's original plan for his creation. It has no part. But unfortunately, we see it even today, the bondage and slavery that goes on. Some will say that, hey, you owe me this, so you need to serve me without question for X amount of years, and I control you. You have no rights. So in this passage, it's a cultural reference to, to the Roman law that was enforced. Any citizen that was living in a con conquered land was to carry the soldier's baggage, like his shield, his sword, his backpack, his saddle. Anything of war that the soldiers said, hey, I'm not carrying it. You, come here and carry it. And they had to, by law, for at least a mile. And then you could drop it off and then be done. And then he would pick somebody else and, and they would carry it. But what Jesus is saying is even if the most despised burden for us to carry, we should be willing to go more than the actual minimum. We should go more. The concept in this is that when we are robbed of some of our cherished liberties, we should surrender even more of it, rather, retaliation. In doing so, we have a fuller, deeper freedom that the world cannot take from us. For we've been bought with a price. It's no longer me standing here. For I've been bought with a price that cost Christ his life. I'm now his disciple. I am under his leadership. I have committed my life to him. And I have no rights. The rights that I think I have, I leave at the feet of the cross. Because I am a servant unto him. Verse 42 goes on to say, Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. The deeper thing in this is the possession is, is a characteristic of a human nature. They want everything. And you see that in today's society as well. They want to gather possessions. And every possession they gather is their cherished possession. And no one can have it. No one can use it. It is sacred to them. 
we, we dislike giving up anything, even for a moment. That which belongs to us. As believers, we forget that truly nothing belongs to us. Everything belongs to the Lord. Everything. And we stop to think through that. When you create that attitude and live in that attitude of everything belongs to the Lord, you actually have more freedom. We are only stewards of what he has belonged, that he has given to us. We should be good stewards. Yes, we'll make a mistake here and there. We ask for forgiveness and work towards resolving that, to be better in our stewardship. We have a right to keep what is ours and use it or dispose it as we see, but the right should be placed on the altar of obedience to Christ. Our, we give up those rights and lay them at the feet of cross and say, Lord, even if it's required for your kingdom purpose, for you to do what is needed, I give that up. And God will remind you of this at moments of your life. He does that quite often. We should be willing to help with a genuine need, but we also should seek the Lord to better understand if that need is truly a need and not some foolish, selfish request. We see that all in life all the time. You show somebody, hey, look what I got. Ooh, I want that. Can I have that? You don't really need that. Give it to me. And you're going, no, this is mine. It was a gift to me. I can't give it to you. Why? Now, part of the process that as a believer in Christ, we need discernment. to saying, do you truly need it or you just want it because it's something new and shiny? And that's where the, the understanding of what possesses me, do I need this to possess because it's shiny and new or should I give it to someone who isn't truly in need? Sometimes we to give to that person but what does he not need? He just wants it from us. And that's part of the discernment. It may be the worst thing you could do for them. It could be more harm than good. The right also implies that we should offer to give what is needed as soon as we know of the need. Whenever we ask for it or not, there are times that you hear of somebody's in need and what do you do? You go, ooh, that's a need. I could do that. And your mind starts going and the old nature rears its head and said, no, we're not giving that up. That's prized possession of yours. Or that money is valuable. It's, it's there for a reason. We can't give that. And the new nature in us says, it's God's. And if God's telling you to give that to that person, then do it. Because we don't own it. We have given up all those rights. Whether if we ask for it or not, Jesus is saying that a true plea of help should not be turned away, but be willing, generous, and loving and be given to others. This, sum, this section sums up this statement. The only person who is non-defensive, never bearing a grudge, and has no spite in his heart is a person who has died to himself. To fight for one right is to prove that self is still on the throne of his heart. A believer who is faithful to Christ lives for him and necessarily dies for him. Romans 14.8 It's impossible to live for self 
and for Christ at the same time. A quote from George Miller says this. Um, Brian has talked a couple times about George Miller and what God called him to do and how he provided a safe home for orphans. He wrote, he wrote this. There was a day when I died, utterly died to George Miller and his opinion, his preference, his taste and his will. I died to the world, to its approval and its center. I died to the approval of the blame of even my brethren and friends. Since then, I have studied only to show myself approved to God. And we look at his life and see what he was able to accomplish. These illustrations reemphasize that the divine standard for living in the kingdom, which was given in the Old Testament, Jesus is the focus upon the internal. What's inside that makes you tick, that makes you act that way? What's in your mind and heart? This section contrasts with the false righteousness of scribes and Pharisees with the true righteousness of God. And that's even true today. And that's part of the process that we are learning to say, Lord, I give of myself. I give all of myself. Every nook and cranny and everything I possess, hope to possess to you. By doing that, you're on the road for righteousness. Verse 43. You have heard that it said, okay, there it is again. It's the Pharisees' uh, thought process. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Funny. I don't remember that in the Old Testament. In fact, they were caught omitting what was true, what it should have been. In um, Leviticus 19. They omitted the phrase that Jesus reminded them. Do not seek revenge. Do not bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love yourself, love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Funny, it's not in there. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Why do we do that? Is not everybody created in the image of God? It's a standard practice for scribes and Pharisees to change scriptures to their advantage. They knew that they could change because nobody reads the scriptures. They could do anything they wanted. Who's going to call them? Jesus did. That's why they were such, such individuals that struggled to hear the truth because, it, because they have been lying to everybody. They're just like that Pharisee who, in that temple parable who stands and says, I'm, I'm great, I'm wonderful, I'm special, and I'm better than anybody else, even this person over here. They knew that they, could, they changed because their desire to be honored, praised, and respected and believed that all was deserved for them. What they thought to, is common to the natural man and sometimes to believers. Self-love, real, active, and quite noticeable. The standard of God was love yourself, and that was his standard. They added, 
oh, no, we don't, want, we don't want that standard. We'll put our own standard. They added, like, hate your enemy. Rabbinic tradition also perverted the Old Testament teaching about love by adding something to it. They added even more per perversion than their omission. But it was the logical extension of their all-consuming self-interest. And that's true for us. Who were their enemies? Well, the list is long. It was everybody that was not Jewish, like the Gentile, the Samaritan, the Romans, everybody else that were not one of them. It was a truly us versus them. We see in verse 44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. The love of God that he commands us is so great that it even embraces enemies. What a concept. The human tendency is to base love on desirability of the object of our love. We love people if they're pretty and money. And they give me things. We love hobbies because it makes us happy. We love things that puts, we can put our pride in. Our cars, our houses, our collectibles. Ooh, I have this great uh, unknown collectible that is valuable to me. And it's so special I'm not going to share it with anybody. But true love is needed. is a need-based life. Example of a good Samaritan who demonstrated great love because he sacrificed his convenience, his safety, his resources to meet another's desperate need. That parable of the Samaritan and the person he found along the road. He stopped with his journey. He tended to him. He took him on his donkey to the end and told him, I'll pay for all the needs he has, and I'll come back if it's not more and pay more. He provided everything, and that took time out of his schedule. Love must involve our attitude because like every form of righteousness, it begins in the heart. That God kind of agape love which combines emotion with action. William Henderson, uh, Erickson uh, said in his book, the in the Gospel of Matthew, all around him, Jesus, were these walls and fences. He came for the very purpose of breaking those barriers so that love, pure, warm, divine, would be able to flow straight down from the heart of God, hence from his own marvelous heart into the hearts of men. His love over, overleaped all the boundaries of race, nationality, party, age, sex. And when he said, I tell you, love your enemies, he must have started amazed his audience. For he was saying something that was probably never before had been said so succinctly, so positively, and so forceful. Love your enemies. No little add-on from that. Love your enemies. We are to pray for those who persecute us. Yes, we need to pray for them, that they too will come to know Christ. Who will persecute you? The world. The world hates God, and he hates us. Your immediate response is to pray for them with a sincere heart and love. And that is hard to do. The Lord helps us to do that if we ask his help. And you've seen too many ex examples of that 
as in life today, when you start praying for someone to soften, that God will soften their heart, that you will be able to be a, a minister to them and help them. You see how God does that. Because the world responds to God's truth and love is persecution. And we see it every day in our lives. Our prayer list every week talks about the persecution that's going on around the world. 250 million people are persecuted actively because they're faith in Jesus. There are over at least 50 countries that we're working through on every Sunday night prayer time that are persecuting people for, because they believe in Christ. Jesus thought that every believer, every disciple who makes his faith known is going to be paying some price for it. And we are to pray for those who exact that price from us. Charles Spurgeon says this, prayer is the forerunner to mercy. At times, other believers will be our persecutor. So the first step to, is to heal those broken relationships in prayer. Our praying for those believers helps you to connect with your heart, with God's heart. Unfortunately, there are believers that will persecute you even though they are believers in Christ because they have sin in their life. Something in their life that's causing them to persecute believers in the family. The result of this is that we will be known as children of God. What a classification to be called the children of God. There is evidence by your love for others that we belong to God. Hence, we will get persecuted more. Hence, we will continue to love others and love God. Do you see the circle in this? Verse 45 says that you may be children of your Father in heaven. John 13, 34 says, A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And loving others is difficult and challenging. It takes time and energy and effort. But it's so worth it. We need to show that the same kind of love that God has demonstrated because God shares blessing to all with no respect or merit or deserving attitude. Verse 45 through 47. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and good and send rain on the righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward is that? Not even the tax collectors, which was even a worse occupation in that time than anything else, is doing that. And if you greet only your people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? We have a, a higher standard of love than the world does because we are disciples of the living God who is calling us to be like him in every part of our lives. He gives to us his power to live this life of love. We need to be more like him. And we can do it through effort and prayer. So the application comes to verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Matthew 7, 12. So in everything to do to others what you want them to do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. To sum it up, Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount 
for all. As well as the Bible, these words, the greatest purpose of salvation, the goal of the gospel, the great yearning of the heart of God is for all men to be like him, to become mature and complete. What are we doing to reach that level? We offer Bible classes, we offer prayer time, we offer discipling, we offer opportunities to go and share your faith with others. We give you opportunities to go and pray for people as you walk through their neighborhood. We go on mission trips. We provide food to the homeless. We provide food for others. We do things because it all points back to that purpose that they will come to know Christ and become like us, children of God. What will you do this week to further that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words that you have given to us through the scripture. And Father, there's so much more there. And we pray and we ask, Father, to help us. To help us be the, the disciple that we can be in you. Father, there is unconfessed sin in our lives that we hold on to. Help us to confess that. There's attitudes and, and judgments that we have towards others that keeps us from fellowshipping with a true heart. Help us to break those down and seek repentance of those. Father, there are times in our lives we are just frustrated and feel like you can't use us. But you come and remind us that we are yours and we are loved and cared for and, and been given everything for life and godliness. Father, we pray that our lives would reflect your holiness and your righteousness as we walk this journey each and every day. Because it is a journey, Father. And our desire is to be like you. We thank you, Father, for your spirit who does so much in our lives each and every day, who reminds us of the passages that we have studied, the scripture we have memorized. We thank you, Father, for his nudging in our lives to make good decisions for you, to be that person of goodness to others. And we praise you, Father, because you truly want that. And through all that, we will praise and glorify your name and lift you up. For you are a God worthy of all praises. In your son's precious and holy name. Amen.